Hello, and welcome to Never the Twins Shall Meet, a pop culture podcast hosted by twin sisters, separated by distance, but united by nerdiness. I'm your host, Lulu. And I'm your co-host, Pi. The funny thing is that for all of the episodes we've recorded this summer, like the basic premise of this podcast has not been true because I'm just like on another floor of the same house while we're recording. So we're really not separated by that much distance, but you know, we're still here and recording. So we, I mean, we're, we're technically separated by some walls. Anyway, before we dive into the actual topic of this episode, is there anything that you've been into recently that you want to highlight to our listeners? Yes, there is. So first of all, I've been reading two very good long-running comic series. The first is The Sandman by Neil Gaiman, which I think is one of the things that he's most famous for writing, but which I had not gotten around to reading until now. And now I'm kind of like kicking myself for not doing it because it's so good. It's a long-running series about Morpheus, the King of Dreams, and his like various issues and his family dramas and the reality of like being a super immortal person dealing with other dramatic immortals. It has very beautiful art. The stories are super imaginative. It has like a lot of stuff to say about like immortality and life and imagination. And it's just like one of those things that you're like, man, uh, I'm really glad someone made this. I just finished reading the last volume in time for the upcoming Netflix series to drop, which I'm very excited about. And it's just like probably going to go down as an all-time favorite comic series, honestly. I'm also currently reading The Immortal Hulk by Al Ewing. I don't read a lot of Hulk comics just because that's not a corner of comics that I'm super interested in. I'm more of an X-Men person when it comes to Marvel. But Al Ewing is like one of those comic writers who will write like literally anything. And I'll read it like I could be reading like his grocery list and being like inspiring, such an interesting use of characters. And this is not an exception. It's a really interesting series in that it's much more horror than superhero comic it's about bruce banner coming back from the dead and discovering that he can't die like no matter what happens he'll come back and it's kind of about monstrosity and anger and trauma and there's also a lot of body horror but it's just like a very compelling and interesting series i also would read literally anything al ewing writes so i feel like i'm gonna have to pick up that series now because I've heard a lot of people refer to it as his like magnum opus and I've really enjoyed everything he writes. He has just such a good handle on characters. So I feel like I will also have to take a dive into that soon. Next, I recently finished reading Never Ever Getting Back Together by Sophie Gonzalez. We both really enjoy Sophie Gonzalez's books and covered one of them on our previous episode. And Never Ever Getting Back Together is her upcoming by a rom-com about two girls who join a reality TV show where they redate one of their ex-boyfriends in order to see if he was the one who got away. But they're actually both secretly there because they want to expose how terrible he is on live TV. And it's just really delightful. It was like super fun and the romance was really cute. And it was just like an excellent read. I have been really enjoying Sophie Gonzalez's books and I think she's kind of like becoming one of my top YA rom-com authors. I'm reading that right now and it's really funny. I'm very excited to see their mutual terrible ex-boyfriend get his due because Sophie Gonzalez is really good at writing a guy who's just like the absolute worst. And finally, because I read a lot of thick fantasy novels, I would like to mention that I just finished reading The Unbroken by C.L. Clarke, which is a very thick fantasy novel inspired by 
the history of French colonialism in North Africa. And it's about a princess who wants to claim her throne from her evil uncle and a soldier who was taken from her home as a child and is now returning in order to quell a rebellion there, but gradually finds herself becoming more and more entwined with the world she thought she left behind as a child. And it was just really fascinating. It had such complex and interesting characters and nuanced politics and the world building was so good. And I was just sitting there reading it being like, this is a really darn good book. And then I finished it and was still like, that was a really darn good book. When can I read the sequel? So I would definitely recommend that to anyone who likes fantasy novels. Is there anything that you have been into or up to that you want to talk about before we start the rest of the episode? Sure. I recently saw the movie Wildhood, which is an indie drama coming of age movie about an indigenous Canadian teenager who goes on a road trip in search of his estranged mother. I really liked it. The lead actor was really good. There was a nice romance subplot. And also it was just like a very gorgeous movie that had some like really nice visuals. So I recommend that if you're in the mood for like a kind of good character driven story with a lot of road trip mishaps. I have also been rereading a series that I really liked as a kid, which is the Lockwood and Co series by Jonathan Stroud. It's about a bunch of British teenagers fighting ghosts and it's being turned into a Netflix show. So I wanted to reread the series and kind of refresh my memory on that. But it's also kind of humbling because I'm realizing that I am just as scared by some of the scenes with the ghosts as I was when I was 12. And I am 21 now, so I have not really increased my tolerance for horror in like nine years, but it's still a pretty fun series. There's a good sense of humor, but also like some actual good spooky stuff. So I'm excited to see how that translates to the screen because I feel like it could be a really good show. And that's just been a fun trip down memory lane. I also just finished reading Seeing Ghosts by Kat Chow, which is a really great memoir about the author's experiences losing her mother to cancer at a young age. It's very emotionally intense because it deals with like the realistic messiness of grief and the way that it can kind of really change a family's dynamics. But it was really good, really well written. It also has kind of an interesting aspect where she delves into her family's overall history of death and grief and illness throughout the generations, including like looking at how it's been shaped by her family's immigration from China. So I, I sort of like the historical aspects as well. That was really good. Uh, I would definitely recommend it if you're the kind of person who's interested in like emotionally intense memoirs about families. So yeah, that's what I've been reading lately. The actual topic of this episode is not any of the things that we have mentioned previously. It is the recent Pride and Prejudice adaptation, Fire Island, which I think is our first Jane Austen adaptation we're discussing on this. We've talked about Shakespeare and stuff in the past, but we're taking a turn into our English literature analysis this episode to talk about the literary roots of a very recent rom-com. The main inspiration for this episode is that when I was road tripping back from college at the start of June, I was reading a New York Times article on the drive and I saw it mention this movie and I was like, oh my God, I didn't know there was a Pride and Prejudice adaptation coming out this year because the 2005 Pride and Prejudice movie is like one of my favorite movies of all time. So I was very excited to see that this came out and I ended up really enjoying it. And I thought it'd be fun to talk about how it works as an adaptation of Jane Austen, but also as like a contemporary rom-com. So we're going to be entering a whole new genre for this episode. There will be like no murder and no magic, which I think is a new one for this podcast. 
Yeah, I also did not know that there was Pride and Prejudice adaptation coming out this year until you mentioned it. But as soon as you did, I was like, we have to watch this. And then if we like it, we have to do an episode on it because we both have a lot of opinions on both Pride and Prejudice and also how to do a good Pride and Prejudice adaptation. And luckily we ended up absolutely loving it. So we're just going to like go for it and say all of our opinions about Pride and Prejudice. So Fire Island is a 2022 movie directed by Andrew Ahn, written by Joel Kim Booster and starring Joel Kim Booster, Bowen Yang, and Conrad Wickamora. And as we said, it's a pretty accurate modern day adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. Instead of following the harried Bennett family and their daughters, trying to solve their financial problems through marriage. It's actually about a group of gay friends during the annual week-long vacation to Fire Island in New York State, which doesn't sound that similar to Pride and Prejudice, but I actually thought it did a really great job of adapting the themes and character dynamics from Austin's original novel and kind of updating them for a modern-day setting. It's kind of funny that we're doing an episode about a movie that's like set during a seaside summer vacation because our last episode was also about seaside summer vacations and had a very different vibe than this one. This is pretty much a straight up rom-com. I, I feel like the trailer for this doesn't make it look very much like a Pride and Prejudice adaptation and more of a general rom-com, but it's actually a very close adaptation. And so we both had a lot of fun watching it because we've read the original book and have like a lot of opinions on how to best adopt the plot piece for a modern setting. I mean, I knew it was based off of Pride and Prejudice going in, obviously, because that was the reason that I was drawn onto it, but I wasn't really sure how close it would be following the novel since the trailer just kind of made it look like a movie about a bunch of friends on vacation. And I was like, cool, we'll see like what kind of light inspiration it draws from Pride and Prejudice. But then it literally opens with like a voiceover of like the like the original quote of Pride and Prejudice about like a man who has a fortune is in want of a wife. I'm a terrible Jane Austen fan apparently because I can't quote that from memory. I thought it was kind of funny because like it doesn't exactly look like it's Pride and Prejudice and you get in and it's like bang immediately it's Pride and Prejudice. You yeah know? so this movie opens uh, pretty much immediately with the famous Jane Austen quote about like it is a universal truth that a man with a fortune must be in want of a wife and then immediately makes fun of the idea that like all men want a wife because the main character is gay. The protagonist of Fire Island is Noah, a late 20s Asian-American gay guy who doesn't have much interest in a committed romantic relationship, but has a really tight-knit group of friends who all vacation on Fire Island together every year. So there's Noah, who's the equivalent of Lizzie Bennett, Howie, who's Jane Bennett, Luke, who's Lydia Bennett, Keegan, who's Kitty Bennett, Max, who's Mary Bennett, and Aaron, who's Mrs. Bennett, which is a pretty large cast. But I think if you're going to translate Pride and Prejudice for a modern day setting, it does make it more sense. It does make more sense to have it be a friend group as opposed to a family, because a lot less people these days have five daughters than they did in like 1813 or whatever. So they're a very close-knit group of friends instead of siblings. I think that Noah's a really great adaptation of Lizzie Bennett because this movie really understands that Lizzie Bennett isn't just smart and witty, and she is the kind of character who always has like a cutting remark. But also sometimes she can be like a little bit too judgy. And one of Noah's main traits in this movie is that he's like extremely protective of his friends and kind of judgy of anyone who was outside of that friend group, which I think translated pretty well to Lizzie being very close with her sisters, but also being a little bit judgmental of other people like Mr. Darcy. I don't know. Should we talk about like the plot of Pride and Prejudice? Are there people who'd be listening to this who don't know the plot of Pride and Prejudice? I mean, I guess we could do like a, a quick rundown just to make sure everyone's on the same page. Right. Okay. So Pride and Prejudice, it's an novel by Jane Austen. You may have heard of it. 
it follows Lizzie Bennet, who is the second eldest daughter in the Bennet family. The Bennet family is not doing so hot financially, and they only have daughters, so they're desperate to marry their daughters off to someone who can provide for the family. So like when their father dies, the house won't have to go off to some distant male relative. When Charles Bingley, an eligible bachelor with lots of money, comes to town with his friend Darcy in tow, Lizzie's older sister, Jane, like immediately gets interested in Bingley and it seems to be that there's something mutual and everyone's like, oh, this is great, but there's a little bit more complication involving Darcy and people making bad first impressions on each other. And it's most known for having this very, very much slow burn. We have bad impressions of each other, but slowly become better and reevaluate what we truly think the person is like. Romance between Lizzie and Darcy, I think it's known for like, commentary on like gender and marriage in the Regency era, but I think it's also quite well known for its romance, which is great. There's a number of adaptations out there. I personally really enjoy the movie with Keira Knightley as Lizzie Bennet, and I've seen that a couple of times, and I think this movie also pays homage to it in a couple of ways, which is very fun for me to notice. But yeah, if you have happened to never heard of Pride and Prejudice, or just happened to have not read it, I personally haven't read other books by Jane Austen, I've only read that one, that is what Pride and Prejudice is about. So now we can freely go on to discuss how this updates Pride and Prejudice, I guess. Thank you for that informative little info dump, Lulu. So on this particular vacation, Noah decides that he wants to help his friend Howie, who is, like we said, the equivalent of Jane Bennett, have a carefree and good time on the island, which includes that he wants Howie to like meet a guy and like maybe hook up with someone or find a boyfriend or like in some way have a fun vacation. So this leads to Noah agreeing that he'll spend the week being Howie's wingman and is going to swear off any hookups until Howie has found someone. Howie wants a genuine relationship, not a one-time thing. And so he ends up running into Charlie, who is another guy vacationing on the island, who's the equivalent of Charles Bingley, and sparks immediately fly. It's very beautiful. They are immediately spent with each other. It's very cute. And unfortunately, Noah immediately gets off on the wrong foot with Charlie's closest friend, Will, who is the equivalent of Fitzwilliam Darcy. And the social hierarchies of Fire Island threaten to ruin the week for everyone involved. We both personally think this is a great adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, but also a pretty fun movie on its own. But I think we are mostly going to be talking about this as an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. We have both read the original novel and watched various other films of it, read book adaptations, and even a stage adaptation. I think in addition to seeing the Kira Knightley movie from 2005, we have also seen Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which is a somewhat silly but still very entertaining movie from 2015. We've read Heartstone by L. Catherine White, which is Pride and Prejudice with Dragons. Uh, seen a stage production at my college which was all female and included a dance number to Waterloo by ABBA at the ending which I maintain was utterly amazing and I loved and we've also seen part of the web series of Lizzie Bennet Diaries which is reimagining the story through YouTube videos that modern day Lizzie Bennet makes talking about her family and have also read Pride by Ibi Zoboy which is also Pride and Prejudice um, in a modern day setting but deals largely with gentrification in Harlem I thought there are probably some other adaptations that I've read at other points, but those are the ones that stick out the most to me. Pride and Prejudice gets remade a lot, and I think it's because people really enjoy the witty banter, but also the romance, and I think Lizzie and Darcy are just very iconic characters, and I think, you know, like, it is a novel that holds up. Like, I was reading the original novel on my own time, not for school, and just being like, this is great, I'm having a good time, so I think it's just the kind of thing that like in the collective consciousness, people really like to reinterpret, whether that's like writing a version of it 
that is fantasy or writing a version of it that's contemporary. So I think Pride and Prejudice is something that's just like very ripe for readaptation and stuff. So I think Fire Island comes as part of like a long legacy of doing that. Yeah, and I think the thing about Pride and Prejudice is that even if your adaptation is not set in the Regency period like the original novel is, the social hierarchies can be very easily reproduced in a modern day setting because, hey, guess what? Classism still exists in the modern day setting and therefore you can do a pretty compelling adaptation no matter the time period. Exactly. I really thought the way that the social hierarchy themes of the original novel were updated for the present day actually worked really well because Regency aristocrats and, you know, kind of the conflict of the less rich Bennett family trying to marry their daughters off to richer aristocrats so they don't have to lose their family estate is a pretty specific conflict that's very much rooted in gender and class and society of the time. So you obviously do have to change certain stuff about that if you're going to be updating it for not being set in the Regency era. And this film is about 21st century Americans. It's not about a blood family. The main characters are not women searching for husbands. But I think the setting of Fire Island allows for explorations of hierarchies within a very specific social group in kind of a similar way. So on Fire Island, which is a very popular tourist destination for gay guys off the coast of New York, the characters are in a majority gay space and they don't have to contend with homophobia. But there are like these other kind of privileges that come into play and there's this hierarchy where basically rich white guys with six packs are at the top and Noah and his friends are not near the top of these rankings because he and his friend group are like, they're, his friend group is a majority people of color and they can really only afford to vacation on Fire Island because they stay in a house bought by their lesbian friend Aaron who unexpectedly came into a lot of money at one point and has since been very bad at managing it, similar to how the Bennets are aristocrats but very down on their luck at the start of the novel. Yeah, the friend who owns the house, Erin, is also about to lose her home due to some bad financial decisions. So this is the very last summer that they're all going to be at Fire Island together. And it lends a very bittersweet tone to the movie because everyone knows this is the last time they'll be doing this together. This is the last time they'll be vacationing with friends in this specific location. Also, the joke about Erin having lost her money because she invested in Queeby is extremely funny. So there's also that. Yeah, if you don't know, Quibi was a failed streaming platform that I think I want to say debuted in 2020. And it was basically kind of like Netflix, but with the gimmick that all the episodes were like five minutes long. And Fire Island was originally supposed to be a Quibi show, except then the streaming service absolutely tanked because like who wants to watch five minute episodes of TV? Like not really anyone. Uh, and then Fire Island ended up being rewritten as a film. So I did kind of find it funny because like I happened to know that going into the movie and it added like a fun second layer to that joke. Yeah, I think it was 2020 because I remember the concept of the streaming service was that you would have something to like watch if you were standing in line somewhere or you were like hanging around outside somewhere waiting for someone. And then suddenly the pandemic hit and no one was like standing in line anywhere or going anywhere. And therefore it was totally useless to have like media to entertain you while waiting in long lines. And therefore the whole thing just crashed. Uh, so that's one joke, but I thought it was really funny and I laughed extremely hard when that came up. I, I just do really think that the dynamics of the Bennett family as lower class aristocrats who like are still aristocrats and have access to these high class society circles but like don't quite belong like actually worked very well for being set on an insular island that's like known for being a gay guy vacation hotspot like they're different settings with different social worlds but they both kind of end up where 
the main characters have access to this world that's kind of like rich privileged people and like don't quite belong there even though they are physically there like the bennett's are kind of down on their money people basically think they're like gold diggers which is not exactly wrong considering the mom basically wants to marry her daughters off to the first rich guy who proposes and noah's friend group is very much looked down on by like rich people who vacation on the island regularly because they can really only afford to be there because like her the friend came into like money very suddenly and they're kind of considered outsiders so it replicates a very specific dynamic without like doing a just copy paste of pride and prejudice it just feels like it's a similar theme transplanted to a different time and place Mm -hmm. it's really clear when they attend a party hosted by charlie that a lot of people there look down on them and consider them to be like uncultured or outsiders or like people who don't really belong on fire island for example there's this running gag of whenever the gang shows up at charlie's house uh the same guy is always like what are you guys doing here are you lost do you need help because he obviously doesn't think they belong there so i think the idea of the Bennett equivalents in this movie being people who don't quite belong in the social circles that they move in uh, because they aren't as rich as everyone else translates really well into the setting of like this kind of exclusive vacation island that only rich people really hang out on and they're not as rich as everyone else and therefore they don't quite belong there. So I think that worked really well. The thing for me is that I think Pride and Prejudice, while a lot of people think of it as an iconic love story, is just as much a story about class as it is about two people who initially dislike each other, but then end up falling in love. Like, and I think this adaptation did a good job of finding a way to translate very specific class dynamics of the novel to the modern day, because none of these characters are British landed aristocracy. They're just like people who live in New York. But I do feel like it echoed a similar sense of that. And that like, to me, was what was important. I very much think that when you're adapting Pride and Prejudice for modern times, the class element is a lot more important to keep than the gender element, which is especially proven by this movie because it is gay instead of a straight romance, but it still has very much a similar dynamic. It's really important to the story and its themes. I think that Darcy and his circle of friends are a lot richer and come from like a lot older money than Lizzie's family and I think like classism is part of the reason why he originally looks down on her and a lot of adopt and a lot of adaptations I think generally don't tend to include that they're just always like Darcy makes bad first impressions because he does but that's not really the only reason. And to be clear even though we're talking about what we don't like in Pride and Prejudice adaptations we're not like ragging on any of the ones that we really mentioned having read or watched earlier I think it's just that I tend to avoid Pride and Prejudice adaptations where it seems like it's mostly billing itself as a romance. Like I enjoy like the family stuff and the stuff about society and the stuff about class. And for me, it just makes it a richer story if I can see all of that translated. Like I really enjoyed how Pride, that retelling that you mentioned earlier, which is set in present day Harlem, updated it to a story about gentrification instead of Regency aristocracy. I thought that was like really clever and a great way to engage with the class aspect of Pride and Prejudice in a different setting. So like most of the other ones that we mentioned do engage with like all of the themes of Pride and Prejudice to some extent. It's just that I tend to avoid ones that I feel like are not totally up my alley. Some people probably enjoy Pride and Prejudice mostly as a romance, but I enjoy like all of the layers together. It just makes a better story to me. So I appreciated that Fire Island is not just a story about two people who meet and have the wrong impression of each other but then eventually fall in love. It's also very much a story about family, in this case chosen family, and about 
like complicated social hierarchies and navigating classism and stuff. And I think those are all aspects of Pride and Prejudice that I feel like I like to see in my adaptations. So it was nice to see them all translated on screen here. I very much agree with that. I mean, the title is Pride and Prejudice. It's not like a love story necessarily. Like it is a romance, but the it, the fact that it's called Pride and Prejudice, I think calls attention to the fact that the social hierarchies and the judgments the characters make based off of them is really important to the book. So we both really enjoyed the fact that Fire Island sticks quite close to the characters and plot of the original novel. It was just really fun to like watch the original plot points line up and like see like oh this is how they're translating this into modern day settings and they like left out this thing that doesn't really work but they replaced it with other thing that works like for example we both let out like this ear piercing shriek when we realized that noah was about to leave a party and eavesdrop on will saying rude things about him like we both screamed because we recognized that the scene from the original book was coming and that translated it really well i maintain that he's not hot enough to be that annoying is this single best adaptation of a line she is not handsome enough to tempt me that has ever existed or will ever exist it was so good one of my favorite things about reading and watching retellings is when you have a moment from the original that you really like and just like the nice anticipation of waiting to see how the creator of a retelling will update it for their version is really fun and there is a moment early on in Pride and Prejudice where Lizzie and Darcy are at a ball together and Darcy is not having a good time and is being very judgy about everyone around there and saying some kind of mean things about the Bennett family. And Lizzie happens to overhear him diss her specifically and that kind of colors her impression of him for like a really long time. And the equivalent of that in Fire Island is that um, Noah is over at a party hosted by Will and Charlie's friends and overhears Will saying disparaging things about him. And it was just such a great update at the moment because you're like, oh my God, they're gonna, they're gonna hate each other now. It's fantastic. Like, it's just great when it really manages to like update an iconic moment really well for like the modern day. And it was just like, I was like, oh my God, first they're gonna do that, first it's inevitable. Oh, here we go. Oh boy, oh God. Yes, as soon as he stood up and was like, I'm gonna go outside for some air. I was like, oh God, it's coming. He's about to hear Will say something mean. And then he did. And I was I was just kind of delighted by it, honestly. I think Noah and Will were both really great adaptations of both Lizzie Bennett and Mr. Darcy, because I think Noah is very funny and sarcastic and loves his friends, but he also has a tendency to make snap judgments about other people which I think is also true of Lizzie Bennet. Like the title Pride and Prejudice does not just refer to Mr. Darcy being judgy. I think she's also kind of judgy of him. And Joel Kambooster just has this like really good judgy attitude throughout this movie. I think it also managed to have a pretty good narration in the form of Noah's voiceover, which I generally enjoyed. I feel like it can be difficult to do voiceovers in movies and TV without coming off as clunky or repetitive because sometimes a character will just be commenting on something that you see there on the screen and you'd be like, you didn't need to say that. Like, I have eyes, I can figure that out. But because Noah is very snarky and has a lot of opinions on things, like it's often him saying judgy things about other people, which is a fun way of like getting inside his mind, which you can't really do when it's a film, like you don't have a first person perspective, but you still are like, yeah, he's hardcore judging these people. And of course he is, he's the Lizzie Bennett character. And that's one of the things Lizzie's known for. 
I thought Joel Kim Booster was great in this. He has a really good sense of comedic timing. Like the voiceover will say like the snarky thing at the exact right moment, or he'll make like a really great expression as a response to something that someone's saying. And it was just really enjoyable to watch. I do agree that I think it can be hard to do voiceovers in movies and TV, sometimes without it sounding clunky. Like I, I do not enjoy the voiceover in Blade Runner. I think like most of it could have been cut and I would have gotten the same impression from the movie. But in this case, I think it works pretty well. Most of the time there are a couple times where I'm like yeah you're just stating the obvious like you don't need to say wow Howie and Charlie are into each other I can see it but sometimes it's really fun to get to like hear his exact thoughts on the characters or like when his impression on someone changes I think it's a clever way of getting into a character's head in a movie where you don't have their narration so that worked pretty well I think. The other most important character in any Pride and Prejudice adaptation is of course Darcy and I also really love this version of Darcy. It's such a good Darcy. I think that Will is a good Darcy in that he has the right amount of aloofness and judginess, but also genuine social awkwardness and like an inability to like talk to people politely or like good make good small talk, uh, which I think is a difficult balance to strike sometimes with the Pride and Prejudice Darcy adaptation because he's not just mean and he's not just socially awkward he's a mixture of both and I think this book really nailed that. Will is Charlie's rich lawyer friend from California and he and Noah immediately get off on the wrong foot. Their first interaction is because a gross guy is hitting on Noah and Noah tries to pull this oh actually this random guy next to me is my boyfriend please leave me alone move and Will is like no I'm not your boyfriend I don't know who you are what are you doing instead of playing along, which is kind of funny because I think I've definitely read or watched rom-coms where characters pull this like, oh, I know this stranger because I'm trying to get up an awkward situation with this person who's like not leaving me alone at a bar or something. And it always turns into those characters like playing along and then like striking a genuine connection. But in this version, Will's like, no, what are you talking about? I did find that to be a very funny reaction because like you said, like so often people play along with it in rom-coms, but in real life, if some like random guy was like, this is my girlfriend, I'd be like, I am I'm not, go away, I've never, I've never seen you in my life. So I thought it was very funny because uh, Will is just like, who is this guy? And his opinion just like goes downwards from there. Well, I feel like depending on the gender of the situation, I would go along with it. Like if a weird guy came up to you and was like, I'm dating this person, I'd be like, what are you talking about? But like, if I was like out and like there was this woman who was being bothered by a guy and she was like, oh, sorry, I see my friend. I have to leave. I'd be like, haha, yes, I totally know you were best friends. Let's leave now. Like, I think it depends on the situation. But in this version, like it's not life or death situation. It's just Noah trying to get out of an awkward situation without like taking many steps. And Will's just like misreads it and is like, what go what's going on? And like they both just misread each other incredibly. Yeah, I believe Will had also entirely missed Noah's interaction with the annoying guy and so had no idea why Noah was pulling this. And I thought it was just really fun because like the point of Pride and Prejudice is that they both have awful first impressions of each other. And like that is a way to have an extremely bizarre impression of someone. So it was just extremely funny. There are all other like bad first impression is a little bit later when Noah is hanging out with Charlie and his friends and he makes a joke about how he thinks all lawyers are evil and Will is like, I'm a lawyer. 
And I just think there's something very delicious about Pride and Prejudice adaptations because you know the characters are going to get off on the wrong foot and you will watch them dig each other deeper into, oh my God, this person's such a jerk. Why are they even friends with this person? Oh God, this is terrible. Like, you know, they're not going to get off on a good foot. They're not going to talk things out. But you also know that they're going to reevaluate their first impressions of each other. So there's something just like very delightful about them, like torpedoing their first impressions of each other, like multiple times, well knowing like by the end of this movie, they're going to be in love. And it's just personally very delightful for me. Uh, I just enjoy that in Pride and Prejudice adaptations. And I think this movie just does a great job of having Will and Noah immediately clash personality wise, just circumstantially wise. Like, they're like, this guy just seems terrible. I don't really want to hang out with him, but I guess we have to because our friends are into each other. But like, I was just sitting there like rubbing my hands together evilly and be like, huh, just you see, just you wait, just you wait. I really think that is the reason that people like adapting Pride and Prejudice so much is that you know that like no matter how much these characters dislike each other, they are going to have to sit down and realize that the other one is not as bad as they originally think they were. And it's not even like I thought this person was a jerk, but actually he's lovely and I completely misread him. It's like, there are legitimate reasons for Lizzie and Darcy to get off on the wrong foot with each other, but they like work to become better. Like Darcy in particular, like it's not just like, I'm going to become a better person for you. It's like, oh, you've made me aware of like some actual flaws that I have. Like maybe I make snap judgments about people and like to use like some modern language, I'm going to like use my privilege for good at points and like help your family and like, together we kind of meet a midpoint it's not just like bad first impressions but it's also like legitimately becoming like a better person because the other person has sort of made you realize flaws about yourself and it's just the inherent romantic like nature of becoming better because like someone like sees your flaws but let, lets you see them and like lets you work through them and sorry I just really like Pride and Prejudice. I mean those are all good points I think the thing about Pride and Prejudice that is important to me is that it's not the story of a guy wearing a woman down until she accepts him. It's the story of a woman being like, you suck. And a man being like, oh my God, I do suck. And then like making some changes to his personality. And then the woman does somewhat of the same. And I think this movie did a really good job with that because it nails the fact that Will is kind of an asshole and does make snap judgments about other people, but is also a bit awkward and introverted and is capable of like growing from his mistakes and realizing that maybe he was a bit too fast in negatively judging Noah and his friends. I also think it's really important that the Darcy character is not just kind of abrasive and awkward and maybe judgmental, but is also just like extremely protective of his family and friends like one of the main reasons that Darcy is suspicious of the Bennett family is because he has run into personal issues in his own family of people like wanting someone only for their money. Like Wickham tried to run away with his very young sister simply because she was rich and Wickham didn't have any money. So when the Bennets who don't have much money and genuinely are relying on like a wealthy man to save their family, when the Bennets like start sniffing around Bingley and he sees that Jane and Bingley have like really hit it off. He doesn't think there could be something genuine because Jane, like Jane and Bingley do genuinely love each other. But like he has seen how Wickham very much used his sister and only wanted her for his money. And in this version, Will similarly is protective of Charlie because he's like, I think Charlie is genuinely a good guy, but kind of naive. And sometimes people take advantage of that. And like, I don't know that your friend has good intentions because 
we know that Howie is a sweetheart who really just like wants love and wants a genuine relationship and is a romantic heart. But Will doesn't know that. And he knows that his friend is also like kind of a romantic heart and doesn't want him to be hurt. So I think in both versions, like an important part of Darcy's character is that he really cares about people who are close to him. And like maybe goes kind of overboard and being a little protective, but it's because like he has genuine reasons to be. And I think that's present both in Jane Austen's novel and in this one. So yeah, are we just going to list reasons we thought this was a good adaptation? Yes, we are. So I think Pride and Prejudice, as exemplified by this movie really well because of the friendship dynamics, is about two people who are so intensely protective of the people they care about that they are kind of incapable of judging other people clearly and maybe perceive them to be more negatively than they actually are. I think somewhat, yeah. Like, I think family is very important to Pride and Prejudice. In the book, it's a literal blood family and the fact that they don't have an eldest son and how that complicates their family. And in this one, it's like a chosen family of friends who have come together like on shared life experiences. They're all gay, but none of the friends in this movie are like dating each other. They just happen to like understand each other on a deeper level. Maybe some of them aren't that close to their birth families. It's never really like delved into that in this movie, but like I liked that it's about family, but like in a different way, because I like movies that are about like tight groups of friends. I think they're fun. Also, along with having just like two really well done main characters, I think the chemistry between the two actors was also fantastic. They have some really good verbal sparring matches. We were just, I was just like watching and like rubbing my hands in glee and being like, what kind of cutting thing are you going to say to him now? Like, what, what are you going to argue about next? I, I can't wait to see where this goes. Oh my god, the argument in the rain when they're just fully laying out each other's flaws was fantastic. Like, there is no original scene in the rain in Pride and Prejudice. It's all just people in houses and garden parties or whatever. But there is a scene in the rain in the 2005 movie, which is when Darcy proposes to Elizabeth, it's raining outside. And I think that's totally an homage in this movie to the 2005 movie, because at a certain point, um, Will and Noah run into each other outside and it's raining and emotions run very high and they start being like, oh, you're terrible. You're so judgmental. I really don't like you. Like, why are you even hanging around my friend? And they, they just like totally lay out each other's flaws. Like, you're afraid of commitment. You judge people all the time, like, etc. And it was kind of great because like, it was sort of like not wrong, but also they're just being like a little bit intense about it, but also like there is some chemistry. It's not just we hate each other. It's like, and also we're kind of into each other and it makes me mad that I'm into someone who's kind of annoying. And like the layers of it was just fantastic. It was great. There's also another scene where they're sitting together at Noah's house and he's like repeatedly trying to get Will to engage in polite conversation while their friends are hanging out together. And it's really funny because it like evolves from like this humorous attempt to like talk to this guy who's only answering your questions in like one word responses to an actually like meaningful conversation and like debate over a book and it's really great because it's such a natural progression from like I'm trying to make small talk with this guy and he's just like not responding to like now we're like suddenly having like an intense debate and we're really enjoying talking and like wait am I enjoying his company and it's just it's a great progression of their characters. That moment is so good because they're kind of intentionally riling each other up, but they're also into each other and they're into the fact that they're arguing. And it's just like such a great epitome of the Lizzie and Darcy argument. Like 
early on in Pride and Prejudice when they're arguing about like, well, I'm surprised that you know any woman you consider accomplished if you have this like an incredibly long checklist of what constitutes an accomplished woman. Like Darcy's like into the fact that Lizzie is challenging him on that. Like he's into the fact that she like is in his house arguing with him. Like he likes that she's standing up to him. And I think in this movie, Noah and Will, both like the other one is like engaging with them like on an intellectual level about a book they both read and they don't have like the same opinions on the book, but they like that the person is willing to argue with them about it and that they have like this shared literary background. Also this movie is important representation for people who bring books on vacation. So I felt very seen by that. Agreed. Also important representation for those of us who really don't like ticks because there's just like an extended thing of how much their friend Max hates ticks. And I was like, Max, this is so valid of you. I also hate the little insects. He's so right. But anyway, <laughs> enough about ticks. I also thought another really fun homage to Pride and Prejudice in this movie was when Noah drops his phone in the pool and Will has to send him a physical letter, like we're in Regency England all of a sudden. That was just kind of fun in a contrived way. Like sometimes we can be contrived and just bring aspects that are outdated from Pride and Prejudice to the present. And I just thought it was kind of fun because one, it has this little layer of drama where like characters will get separated from their friends or he'll be out of the loop because he doesn't have his phone. But two, it's also just kind of funny because like writing letters to the object of your affection is like, such a not a modern day thing like people don't write love letters but this movie was just like you know what just for this one week we're gonna have the characters indulge in writing each other physical letters just because we can and i was like that is so fair letters are part of pride and prejudice you can put them in this movie if you want i loved that part when noah drops his phone in the pool early on and it dies i wasn't like entirely sure what the point of that was except like maybe showed like his friends are like uh not rich enough to like buy him a fancy replacement phone because he has to stick it in like a bowl of rice but then it turns out to be important later on because after Noah and Will had like their huge argument and they're like misunderstanding her to like the greatest possible extent Will then writes him a letter like explaining why he's been behaving the way he did and like the history that he has with the unpleasant Wickham character that he has not been able to disclose beforehand and it's like sort of an important moment that like uh, Will is like able to like sit down and like write out like his version of the events without like Noah interrupting him so he sends it as a letter and then they get like a dramatic voiceover and the truth is revealed and it's just like a very good way of incorporating that into a modern game movie I think. I also feel like an important thing about Darcy in the original Pride and Prejudice is that once he realizes Lizzie isn't into him and he proposes to her and she turns him down in the most epic feminist way possible which is truly legendary even like 200 years later anyway once he is turned down by her he's willing to back away and leave her alone i think he says something along the lines of like one word from you on this matter will silence me forever he's like i'm not going to try to like pitch my case again i'll just leave you alone i'll back away you've made it clear that like you wouldn't marry me if i was the last man alive on earth like we're done but I want to communicate this important information to you about this Wickham guy because he's really shady. So I'm going to be non-confrontational and send you this letter. And that just carries over into this adaptation where Will is like, listen, like we have gotten off on the wrong foot and like we keep clashing, but I genuinely do worry about this unfolding situation involving this guy who is not what he seems to be. So I'm going to send you a letter with that information. And it was just like, Darcy, he respects people. Hooray. I feel like we should add a little bit of context for like anyone who doesn't remember who Wickham is. He's in the original book, a guy that 
uh, Lizzie befriends, who claims to have been like former friends with Mr. Darcy, who then like mistreated him and was mean to him, and that's why they don't get along. And Lizzie's like, "Oh my God, Mr. Darcy's the worst. How could he mistreat you like that? You're so nice." And then it actually turns out that Wickham was the one who did Darcy wrong because he tried to elope with Darcy's much younger sister. And in this version, it's not quite the same because. Will doesn't have a younger sister and women can't get their reputations ruined by eloping people in this day and age. Um, but it's a similar theme of like, this toxic friend has befriended you, but you don't know they're actually toxic persons. So we kind of like are miscommunicating about this. And then uh, they translate it really well into a modern day setting, which I think we'll explore more. But basically it's like important to the plot that uh, eventually will sends noah this letter that explains like this is why i was behaving the way that i did like towards you and about wickham and i like i'm not gonna like confront you about it but i think you can just know the details which i thought was a really good way of translating it in general this movie uh is kind of good at making will very non-confrontational sometimes because there is a running gag that will will be like out around on the island like eating an ice cream cone and then he'll see Noah and just like fling away the ice cream cone and run because he doesn't want to talk to him and this happens like at least two times. It's so funny because the first time is that uh, Will is out with his friends and Noah is coming back from grocery shopping and they just run into each other and Will is like eating a tiny ice cream cone and because they're like in their stage of intentionally riling each other up because they just get on each other's nerves. Noah says something like, oh, I, you didn't strike me as a tiny ice cream cone kind of guy. And Will just like throws it away and he's like, ah, what ice cream? You didn't see that? Because he just like doesn't enjoy being called out like that. And then later on when they have like really gotten on each other's nerves after their big like fight in the rain when they're like, oh no, wait, we're into each other. Oh no, we can't be into each other. This is terrible. Um, then like, when they cross paths again, Will is eating ice cream a second time and he like throws the ice cream in the trash and books it away from Noah. And it's just incredibly funny because he's just like very non-confrontational, but it's like extremely funny. It's like, have we all not had one person that we just physically want to run away from when we see them? But like people don't usually do that in real life, but it's a comedy. So people can be over the top in this movie. This movie is really hilarious. Like, first and foremost, I feel like it's really a comedy, and most of the jokes land really well. All the actors have a great comedic timing. There were, like, at least two times watching this movie that we had to, like, pause because we were laughing so hard and couldn't understand what people were saying anymore. Kitty and Lydia as theater school dropouts is a fantastic adaptational choice. I loved it. No notes. Perfect. I expect it in all adaptations now. I also just think that like there was a real sense of history and closeness between the characters, especially Noah and Howie. And like they have inside jokes, they play games together. Like you really got the sense that these are a close group of friends who have spent many summers vacationing together. And the fact that they're like easy with each other and have these little like one-liners and jokes and stuff like I, that to me felt like a very organic representation of a close friend group that has a long history together. I really agree. The characters argue sometimes, like there's specifically a really great scene where Noah and Howie argue about their different opinions on romance, but they also all clearly care about each other a lot, and it's just really excellent. It's also just like fun to watch because, for example, there's an extremely aggressive game of heads up that they play where everyone's just like screaming and howling over like people's inability to guess what character they're holding, and it's really funny. I personally think if people are not screaming by the end of your game of heads up, then you're doing it wrong, so I'm glad this movie also understood that. There's a really funny part where uh, Noah's friends have invited 
Will and Charlie and their friends over for dinner and they're playing a game of heads up and everyone's just like utterly appalled that like uh, Will doesn't know the answer to the heads up person they're trying to get him to guess and they're just like screaming about it and it's really funny. On a slightly more serious note, I think this movie managed to update Mr. Wickham's terribleness in a way that makes a lot of sense for the 21st century and also led to a moment where I screamed, oh no, Luke eloped with Mr. Wickham at the top of my lungs, even though like didn't technically happen. He didn't actually elope with someone. So in the original book, like we said, Wickham ends up seducing Lizzie Bennett's youngest sister, Lydia, and elopes with her, which was like hugely scandalous, utterly ruined her reputation, like an awful thing for a man to do if he's not intending to marry the woman. Um, and so this movie updates that with having the Wiccan character who is called Dex hook up with Noah's Luke friend Luke and then post the sex tape online. And I think this managed to work really well as an update in order to show like how slimy and awful Wickham is and like the way that like his interactions with this group of friends eventually managed to like lead to like a serious problem with someone and I think it was handled fairly respectfully in my opinion like this is portrayed as like an awful violation of privacy and like a really bad thing to do to Luke and I think considering in the present day it's impossible to do a plot line in which someone has their reputation ruined by eloping with a guy they're not married to I think this was one of the best ways they could have adapted it because you get the sense of like oh man this is like a really awful thing for Wickham to have done without it being the exact same thing I mean I think depending on the cultural context you maybe could have a story in which elopement kind of ruins someone's reputation but if you're doing like 21st century American gay guys who are not into monogamous marriage like that wouldn't really be as scandalous I was thinking while I was watching this that I think because it's set in the 21st century the way that it resolves the Wickham stuff is pretty different from the original Pride and Prejudice because in the original Pride and Prejudice the happy ending is that Lydia's reputation is salvaged but she's still stuck with Wickham as her husband right like Darcy kind of helps pay for their wedding and sort of helps rehabilitate her reputation in the eyes of society but she can't run off with a guy and then not marry him because that would completely ruin her for any kind of marriage. So the happy ending is that she's like stuck with him, which is like, it is still unpleasant, but like there just weren't options for like, well, you made a wrong snap judgment as a young girl. So we're just going to give you a second chance. But I think in this one, it's like, well, we can kind of think of like Wickham as like a character who's like abusive and toxic and doesn't respect boundaries and stuff. And the happy ending is not just that a character's reputation is saved, but like that we can just get Wickham out of the picture, which was not an option in the original Pride and Prejudice, I assume. Though there are a number of sequels where Wickham dies gruesomely, which I approve of. And also in Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, he turns into a zombie and is killed, which like, hooray, I think we should all enact violence on George Wickham because he sucks. But I think because this is in the modern day and there isn't this like regency society marriage reputation woman's virtue kind of thing happening like it's satisfying to me that the happy ending is not just like well okay like the Lydia character's reputation is saved it's just like Wickham gone he's awful he's out of the picture goodbye the happy ending is just being very far away from him and that's satisfying to me because Wickham sucks he really does I greatly appreciated the moment in which they threw his phone into the pool I thought that was an excellent and satisfying moment. Also, you're right, there are kind of a lot of uh, sequels or adaptations of Pride and Prejudice in which something awful happens to Mr. Wickham. I personally am anticipating reading at some point the book The Murder of Mr. Wickham by Claudia Gray, which is about exactly what you think it is, and I think a really satisfying idea for a sequel. 
So in this case, I think um, one of the reasons that a modern day setting works well is that they're able to be like, actually, Mikum is awful and we're just like gonna deal with him and get him away from everyone and never gonna see him again, as opposed to in the original book where the happy ending is that like Lydia is married and her reputation is saved. In this case, it's like, we're going to threaten him with legal action, throw his phone in the pool, threaten him and like kick him off the island. Which isn't to say that like Jane Austen didn't do enough for her book or that her book isn't feminist enough. Like it is still very much a piece of literature where women are confined by their roles in society. Like the happy ending isn't that the Bennett family is like, oh, hooray, never mind. One of our daughters can inherit the family estate so they don't actually have to get married. Like, I, I think Austin is realistic about what a happy ending entails for a woman in this like specific setting and time period and culture. And it's not that you can break out of like bad regressive roles for women in which you have to get married and you can't inherit and your reputation can be ruined and there's like double standards for what is expected of men and stuff like that. Like Pride and Prejudice is a feminist text for its time. Like Lizzie Bennett being like, I am not going to marry this rich guy who proposed to me because I don't like him and I don't want to spend my life with him even though it would help my family is like incredibly feminist. Like the way that it looks at like women's roles in society. Like how Wickham was able to run off with Darcy's younger sister, but then is able to go on and like start a new life somewhere else. But Lydia would be like utterly ruined if she eloped with him. Like that is feminist because it's giving women a voice in that time period and like looking at their hardships, particularly in relation to like marriage and land and inheritance in like Regency aristocracy. Like that is feminist. I'm not saying that because George Wickham did not like get kicked out of society and go live on a sad potato farm. Like I'm not saying because Pride and Prejudice doesn't end up with something bad happening to Wickham, it's not a good text, but like it is kind of satisfying to see something bad happen to Wickham in a context in which bad things could happen to Wickham. Excellently put, I definitely agree with that. Like Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice like is a feminist novel because the women have so much say in what they can do. And I feel like by putting this in a modern setting, it gives the characters even more agency because they are in a circumstance in which they are able to punish Wickham for what he did and make sure that he can't do it again and like help their friend out of the situation. So I thought it was just a good way of being like, this character is awful, but also we can like do something about it in this one. We have also talked a lot about how this relates to the original text in Pride and Prejudice, but I think this also does have like its own original thoughts and its own original take on identity and romance and relationships. In particular, the way that this movie has a lot to say about what it's like to be both Asian American and gay and the way that even when you're in a community of other gay guys, you still have to deal with anti-Asian racism. Like that's not something present in Pride and Prejudice, but that's very much an aspect of this movie. Like one of the reasons that Howie and Noah are so tight is because they understand kind of like the dual experiences of like maybe not belonging to straight society because you're gay, but also like feeling like you're an outsider and facing racism and fetishism within the gay community because you're Asian. And I think similarly to how Pride and Prejudice gives like a voice to women at the time and is in a feminist text, like this movie is kind of giving a voice to like a marginalized group. And that also is kind of a way of updating the text for a modern audience. Yeah, it's something that I don't think I've seen discussed in a rom-com before, but there is plenty in this movie about uh, prejudices within the gay community, specifically anti-Asian racism. Like, 
the Mr. Collins character who's like in Pride and Prejudice is like an annoying suitor who won't leave Lizzie alone in this version is a guy who keeps hitting on Noah and Howie because he has an Asian fetish and they're like gross we don't like this guy but also it's like an unfortunate reality that people like him exist and like we wish that he didn't exist uh and so I think that this movie did a really interesting job of exploring Howie and Noah's friendship because of like the um, prejudices they face within their community for their like two identities of being gay men and also Asian American men. So that was just something that I thought was really interesting that I don't think I've seen explored in like any other movies, let alone a rom-com, but I'm really glad this movie touched on it. It also made me really, really invested in Howie, who is the Jane Bennett character, like we said, getting a happy ending because he and Noah have had sort of two different reactions to the fact that there is still prejudice even within the gay community. And Noah's is kind of the, he sort of has now lived his life like no commitments. I'm not interested in a long-term romantic relationship. I'm just kind of here to have a good time. And Howie just feels like he can't get what he wants, which is just to be like loved genuinely in like a serious committed relationship by someone who like respects him and is understanding of him. And just like the way that the different ways that they navigate that is sort of like, showing nuance within like another specific community and they do have like kind of an intense argument about this like near the climax of the movie about like their different takes on like what it means to face this different kind of oppression but it just made me very invested in how we getting a happy ending like he was just a good Jane Bennett character because I was like very invested in him not ending this movie sad and alone. Yeah he and Charlie have really good chemistry like their interactions are just really cute and sweet and I just enjoyed watching them talk to each other. I think this movie understood that the Bingley character must have the energy of a really cute golden retriever and it nails it in this and I was just like I want them to be happy and get over their issues and communicate. I also liked that this movie didn't really have a totally conventional rom-com ending in that Howie and Charlie get a big romantic gesture moment complete with like literal grand theft of a water taxi so they can like follow Howie back to the mainland after he's decided to leave their vacation early and by the way, I am of the opinion that Grand Theft Auto is loud when it's romantic. It no, is. That's just a truth. It is loud. Anyway, so Howie and Charlie get the, like their moment of declaring their feelings and like a passionate kiss and like we're together now and that's the happy ending. But Noah and Will do kind of get like their romantic like, oh yeah, we are into each other. Like all of our banter and riling each other up has been kind of hiding the fact that like we're into each other and have been growing emotionally in this movie but they like they don't decide to immediately jump into a serious relationship and be like you're the only one for me we'll be together forever now it's like they don't want to be necessarily committed monogamous romantic partners forever but they're like yeah we're willing to give this a try whatever it is like we want something together and we find that like what well, we clashed we've come together now like we're not going to change who we are and what we want out of the world maybe we don't exactly want a traditional tie a bow on it happy ending relationship but like we both know that we're willing to give this a shot and I kind of like that it reminded me a little bit of the ending of Jack of Hearts and Other Parts by um Lev Rosen that we talked about a couple episodes ago where like the main character is not into committed romantic relationships throughout the book and at the end it's still like yeah I still don't want a committed romantic relationship but that's just who I am and it's respected by the narrative so I kind of like that even though Noah becomes like less cynical and kind of opens his heart up and is able to like realize that he's into Will it doesn't like fundamentally have to change him as a person he's not like a bad person for not wanting to like tie himself into a single relationship 
and to be clear like there is plenty of romance for Noah and Will like they get like a big dramatic kiss against the sunset and then they like hang out with their friends and like it's all very romantic but it's also like we like just met each other we're not gonna like leap into declaring that we're soulmates we're just gonna like see what kind of people we are what kind of relationship we want to be and it's a bit more open and ambiguous which I don't think is super common in rom-coms but I really liked because it would have felt very untrue to the characters especially Noah's character who like oh my god I love you I'm quitting my job moving to LA so we can live together forever and we're getting married next week I just would have like felt wrong with how the character had already been established so it just felt like a really good ending for both of the couples in this movie. I do kind of wish that Noah's friend Max, who faces kind of similar problems to Howie and he doesn't feel like he's desirable, had like a 30 second subplot of getting a happy ending just because I think he seemed nice and I wanted a happy ending for him as well. Maybe sequel about Max, perhaps someday? Mostly, I just really want to go on vacation with my friends after watching this movie. Also, I have an important question this movie didn't answer, which is, if Will is a lawyer, how on earth does he not know what Legally Blonde is? It's one mystery that will never be answered. And with that, we've been Never the Twins Shall Meet. If you'd like to keep up with our further podcasting misadventures, you can follow us on social media. We're on Instagram at Never the Twins Shall Meet, on Twitter at Never Twins Cast, on Tumblr at Never the Twins Shall Meet.tumblr.com, and we have our website, of course, Never the Twins Shall Meet.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave us a rating or review.